I threw the poles out, you know, and tried to grab onto something, anything. And there was just nothing to grab onto. As I fell, I remember thinking, this is it. Crevasse falls when you're not on a rope are not a good thing. I'm Rebecca Huntington. You're listening to The Fine Line, real stories of adventure, risk, and rescue in the backcountry of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a project of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation. This episode of The Fine Line is supported by Raintree Foundation, a family foundation with a strong attachment to Wyoming, and in particular, the Jackson Hole region. Raintree's primary focus is education, but the foundation also supports a variety of projects that bring people into the outdoors. And through Teton County Search and Rescue, help them return when needed. You can support the volunteers at Teton County Search and Rescue by making an online donation today. Go to tetoncountysar.org donate. 30 feet down a dark, icy hole, Tyler Willis was stuck, cold, and losing the use of his hands. Pinned at the waist, the 34-year-old climber from Evanston had fallen into an hourglass-shaped crevasse on the Teton Glacier. At about 50 acres, the Teton Glacier is the largest of 11 glaciers in the mountain range. Willis never gave up hope of being rescued, but who came to his side was a lucky surprise, showing the importance of having everyone in the mountains prepared with the knowledge and gear to help. In part one of this two-part series, we'll hear from Willis and Ryan Stolp. A Jackson climber, Stolp had also summited Mount Owen on August 8, 2020. He and his climbing partner were on their way down when they came across the accident. My name's Tyler Willis. I'm a teacher in Evanston, Wyoming. I teach English as a second language, kindergarten to eighth grade, and I'm married, have two kids. Grew up in Heber, Utah, and kind of living in the mountains, uh, mostly skiing and hiking, not as much rock climbing, and kind of added that to my repertoire in college. My climbing partner is Josh Anderson. We're both teachers. He's actually an administrator here in Evanston, Wyoming now. Uh, We met about seven years ago, had similar interests, so we um, kept climbing together. We've climbed before in the Tetons. We've climbed in Mexico, the Wind Rivers, the Wasatch, the Sierras. So done quite a bit of climbing around and then also a lot of canyoneering, sport climbing, uh, scuba diving, paragliding, kind of the gamut of uh, adventure sports. We drove up from Evanston. It's about four hours to the Lupin Meadows trailhead there. We got to the trailhead around nine in the evening, watched the sunset into the Tetons and did a 2 a.m. start. Actually, I think it was a little earlier than that for uh, the Grand. I think we started about 1 a.m. up the Grand, simul climbed, got to the summit about 8.30 in the morning, spent about a half hour, just the two of us on the summit. It was a great time on the grand. Got back to the car just before noon. So we were about 10 hours car to car and felt great with that. I haven't done a ton of trad leading. So I was experimenting with some trad leading. And the next day we went to float the uh, Snake River Canyon on paddle boards. And that was our day off. Took it easy there and then headed back to Lupin Meadows for another go, this time at Mount Owen. We selected the Coven route. It goes at 5'4". Doesn't seem to be very popular. You know, on the Grand, we ran into dozens of other climbers on Mount Owen. We saw Ryan and Kaya and then two other climbers total for the whole day. My name's Ryan Stolp. I do a marketing strategy in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I also have a comic strip, Lift Lines. 
um, and uh, ended up meeting Tyler on the Teton Glacier. You know, we were feeling a little rugged from the Grand and then doing the river, but started at one in the morning on Saturday the 8th from the Lupin Meadows, went up over Amphitheater Lake, and then dropped down onto the toe of the glacier, stashed our trekking poles there at the toe of the glacier, and switched to crampons and ropes and harnesses and started up the Coven route. Um, so I was climbing with uh, Kaya Mosenthal. She's a friend of mine from Teton Science Schools. We worked together and she had been eager to get in the mountains and she had suggested doing a Tiwanat to Owen Traverse, which is a bit more of a kind of ridgeline mountaineering scramble. There's a little bit of trad, a little bit of rope work. A lot of it can be done simuling or soloing style of climbing that I've been interested in lately. So we <laughs> made plans Friday night and met at the trailhead at 6.30 or so maybe, started hiking. So not a super alpine start. Ended up running into Tyler and Josh as they were coming down off of the top of Owen. We were just about to head up. There's a little snowfield. Got a little beta on the best route to the top there. Thought that was gonna be kind of the last that we'd see of them. So we started up the Coven Kular. It was a little bit loose. It mostly melted out. So it wasn't really ice climbing. It wasn't really rock climbing. It was kind of nasty. So we worked to the left onto some slabs. We were taking turns leading on trad. It wasn't super hard climbing. So it was a good spot for me to be messing around with trad. So that definitely slowed us down a little bit. We came around to the uh, upper snow field, found a good spot that we felt good crossing that. Um, looking up to the, uh, the rest of the Coven route that goes at 5.4, the snowfield looked a little sketchy, so we decided to work our way to the right and around onto the East Ridge that goes at 5-6. And that's where we ran into two other climbers. They were doing the Grand Traverse, so they were headed for the North Ridge of the Grand and chatted with them for a minute. And we actually ended up summiting almost the exact same time, so we were on the summit together. Spent a few minutes there, chatted it up, and yeah, I'd, I had planned on getting to the summit around 12.30 based on how well the grand went underestimated a little bit how tired we were still going to be from doing the grand and just the extra time of josh helping me with some trad leading stuff and we just didn't feel like we were in a huge rush i sent my wife a message said hey we're at the top at that point it was 2 30 in the afternoon i said we you know probably should hear from us around midnight is what we were looking at for getting down started wrapping off did some scrambling around and came back onto the snow field. And just below that is where we ran into Ryan and Kaya, chatted with them for a minute. And then Josh and I continued heading down the mountain from there. There's several rappel places and we only brought a 40 meter rope. So our rappels were pretty short. That slowed us down a little bit as well. Had to do a few more rappels and a little bit more down climbing than maybe we would have liked to finally made it back down to the toe of the glacier and by then it's about nine o'clock at night it's starting to get dark and we're feeling hey we're off the technical stuff we're okay bust out the headlamps here in a minute and we'll get off this mountain and no worries you know we've had plenty of long days and late nights before josh was pulling the uh rope from the last rappel and coiling it and i shouted to him hey man i'll grab our trekking poles that we had left on the glacier and start down and he said okay so i walked over fairly flat section of the glacier not somewhere that i coming across in the morning that i'd felt like we needed to rope up you know we we stopped as soon as we felt like hey this is it this is where we need to rope up and we stopped put 
ice axe crampons uh, roped up at that point. So started walking down with those trekking poles, got maybe 50 or 60 steps down, stepped on a weak spot in the snow. You know, it was getting dark, but in my opinion, there was no indication that there was anything unstable or, you know, risky about that spot, but stepped in and fell through and dropped about 30 feet down into a crevasse. I threw the poles out, you know, and tried to grab onto something, anything, and there was just nothing to grab onto. As I fell, you know, I, I remember thinking, this is it. Crevasse falls when you're not on a rope are not a good thing. That moment of like, I'm done, was pretty terrifying. I came to a stop and I was wedged in a constriction in the crevasse between 20 and 30 feet below the top blue ice, you know, real legit glacial crevasse. I've spent quite a bit of time in Alaska as well and on glaciers and had that feel of, it wasn't just a hole in the snow. It was a, it was a real ice crevasse where I was wedged. My feet were dangling free and I couldn't see the bottom, but I could hear water running on the bottom. I knew I didn't want to fall any deeper and I knew there was no way that I was going to get past that constriction if I did fall in deeper. So I yelled up to Josh and said, Hey man, I fell in a crevasse. And he's like, are you okay, man? Yeah, somehow I am. And at that point, you know, I kind of thought, well, Josh will lower a rope down and I'll hand line out of here and I'll be fine. You know, we'll have a crazy story to tell. Whoa. You know, I can't believe that happened. But I, at that point I was still thinking, we'll, we'll walk off the mountain. It's just going to be a crazy story because somehow I'm pretty uninjured. What I underestimated was just how stuck I was in that constriction. As I started trying to pull, I couldn't move. My harness was wedged in such a way that I couldn't tie onto my harness. Josh tried to lower some prussics down to me. I couldn't get around the constriction to get my foot into a prussic. So I was like, uh-oh, this is, this is not a good situation at this point. And then very quickly after that, I started to just get cold. I had a down jacket on, down sweater, pretty lightweight sweater and shorts and climbing boots. Fortunately, I still had my climbing helmet and harness on. Once that water soaked through that down jacket, that was the first time that I thought this just crossed a line into like real trouble. Josh at that, about that point saw the headlamps of Ryan and Kaya. The Coven route was our planned descent from the Traverse. For us, we had a 60 meter rope. It's probably eight or 10 rappels. They have to move the station. So it's kind of a slog. And we had just finished right around nine o'clock, like right when you'd probably want to put a headlamp on the last rappel. And I'd seen this group below us and we were catching up with them rappelling, you know, and we get to the last rappel. I pull the rope, putting it up. And this guy looks like he's looking for a headlamp or filling water in a little hole in the snow. And then I throw my headlamp on and he looks up and is yelling at us. And I thought that he was selling us to cross over and to down climb in this gully. And I admittedly I took it with a grain of salt because I was like, man, these guys were slow repelling. Now he's trying to tell me where to climb. Like, and so I'm like down climbing, coming up on the edge of Teton Glacier. And I'm like thinking about it. And he keeps looking in this hole. And I'm like, oh, oh, he said crevasse. And that was when it was like, okay, Kyle, let's go into Top Gear. If his buddy, who I haven't seen, is in this hole, the clock has been ticking. Um, that's something... I knew from my, um, I'd taken a Knowles course on uh, mountaineering and crevasse rescue and taught a course. Um, so it, it got pretty serious for me at that point. 
So knowing that there was crevasses there, Kai and I roped up again on a short glacier rig just to protect ourselves and not make the situation worse and arrived at Josh by the hole. He had uh, created um, kind of an ice axe in the snow with the rope down that I'm not sure if Tyler had clipped to it yet or not, but um, Josh had done what he could, you know, um, had already prepped the lip. So um, anytime you're dropping ropes into a crevasse, you have a a potential for the rope to cut into the edge of the snow, kind of like floss and cheese or something. So you want to put an ice axe or a pole to kind of allow the rope to go over a hard edge. He had done everything right that he could to that point, but I knew it was going to take a couple people to get him out of there. We kind of immediately started delegating. And I think, um, you know, Josh, seeing your buddy going a hole, I think it was just helpful to have a little bit of a team structure. So Kaya and I started digging two holes that we would end up putting crampons in for a dead man. So that's a hole. It's about, a f- depends on the snow consistency and wetness, but about a foot, foot and a half deep. You can tie some rope or anchor cord to something that you put in the hole. We ended up putting crampons in the hole because they were metal and strong and I had them in my backpack pack it back in and that would be the kind of anchor point from which we could pull Tyler out of the crevasse. So I built a a really strong bomb proof anchor. Kaya had a spot device. I think it was a Garmin inReach, but it takes a little bit of time to kind of set up and get a signal. So uh, we kind of had to manage our time about, hey, Kaya, I need you to help me build the dead man so I can start working on setting up, rigging the rope and then you can go deal with sending the signal out. So there were kind of different clocks running. Tyler was responsive in the hole. I think he'd been in there uh, probably 30 minutes plus, maybe longer, Um, really starting to complain about being cold. He doesn't have a headlamp, so I kind of needed to see what was going on. So from the anchor, we strung our rope down, and I was able to kind of move along it with a prusik, which is a kind of a progress capture knot so I could get near the edge safely was able to communicate with him he said he was stuck and that he couldn't reach his harness which it was pretty great luck that he still had his harness on Um, I had remembered from like boy scouts I think um, in like water rescue you can generally do it with a bowline under the armpits and pull someone across or out and so since he couldn't get to a tie-in point around his waist I thought maybe we could pull him up by his armpits Uh, kind of a false thought that it's possible to just put a loop around someone and hand over hand pull them out with a rope like you see maybe in the movies. Um, There's a lot of friction involved. There's a lot of dead weight. Um, And so what you need to construct is a haul system. So um, in mountaineering and crevasse rescue, it's called a Z drop or it's a three to one pulley system. If you think of the letter Z, that's kind of the path that the rope takes. And so one end of that Z is down in the hole Um, It comes up over the prepped lip to the anchor, the two dead men. It loops through, in our case, we had a a carabiner. So it loops around that anchor back down towards the crevasse. And then right near the edge above the snow, um, we put another prusik. So that's uh, something that's gripping the rope with another carabiner. So that's the pulley. So now the rope redirects back up towards the anchor. For every three feet that you pull on that above ground tail, your rope in theory would move about one foot. So it gives you a mechanical advantage. There's a lot of rope stretch. um, There's a lot of friction, a lot of other little factors, but it would allow two people, Kaya and myself, to clip the the loose end of the rope to our harnesses and then 
kind of dig in on all fours and coordinate walking uphill to pull progress on this rope. Dropped a loop to Tyler. He put it around his armpits um, as he could get it. Kaya and I started to pull. And so it's, it's kind of like pulling the rope maybe 10 or 15 feet, um, capturing your progress with another knot, and then lo loosening the tension on the end of the rope, running down and resetting your system. So you have to slide it down. So it's kind of like a ratchet, like a come along. It's a, a lot of running back and forth. Josh was helping us communicate with Tyler because we were away from the edge, pulling this system up. Tyler started to move, but it sounded like just with how stuck he was, the rope in his armpits was just pulling him apart and, and really cutting into that soft spot under your arm to the point where I, I think he lost feeling and was able to communicate this to us, which was ideal. Like, hey guys, I'm slipping, this isn't working. I can't, I can't hang here while you figure out, you know, that last getting over the lip section. Like, you gotta lower me down. Definitely a little disheartening that we had maybe created this solution that uh, we kind of go back to ground, you know, step zero. Um, knowing that being wet and cold in a crevasse is a, kind of a time bomb. Reluctantly lowered Tyler back in and he communicated to us that he could maybe get a foot in this constriction so that when he was kind of back in that spot, his harness would be free. You know, Tyler didn't have crampons on at that point. They were in his backpack. It would have been pretty unreasonable to think that he could put them on. Trying to kind of stem between the two walls of the crevasse, which um, at its widest point was maybe five feet wide. And then it comes to this constriction that would catch you at the waist. And it's kind of an hourglass shape as um, I later discovered. Lowered Tyler back down and he slipped a little bit and got stuck again in a similar fashion where the harness hard point was, you know, squeezed up against the wall. So again, couldn't really get to his, his, um, his hard point. So I'm communicating down with him. Okay. The, the armpit bowl and loop is not the, the solution here. We've got to get him on his harness, you know, and then I'm dangling for quite a while and it starts hurting more and more. And once the pain of my arms passed the, you know, pain of being cold, you know, I was like, this isn't great. And I kind of felt like if I lost consciousness that I might slip out of it as I was, you know, trying to keep my arms flexed and, and holding on. Um, I remember I got close and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to get out of this thing. And I'm close to the edge and looking up and Ryan yelled down to me, Hey man, we're, uh, we got to figure out how to get you over the lip. And I said, dude, I don't have more time. Um, you know, and I could see kind of a little alcove and I thought if I can get in there, I can, uh, get the rope off my arms, tie into my harness, and then they can pull on me all day. Uh, at that point I kind of underestimated how cold I was and how damaged my hands were. Um, but I, I, I think the best thing was to get lower down. I don't think I would have made it. And if I'd fallen through the, you know, the loop of the rope, I would have potentially fallen through the constriction or just been stuck all over again. Kaya was able to, at this point, like start to get a message out via the in reach. It's probably 10 o'clock at this point. 
But the inReach um, has to do with uh, satellite like visibility of the sky. So we're in this like narrow canyon valley. Um, and so she's like created this message, but it's not getting out. So it's kind of a set it and forget it and hope that it picks up a satellite. I ended up uh, repelling using the other end of our 60 meter rope, um, just kind of created a giant loop, a, a huge, what we would call a bite. When you repel, you repel on two ropes. So I just made a giant loop, tied a catastrophe knot at the end of it so I wouldn't slide off the end, um, and repelled down to where Tyler was. This is when it really, really got real for me, I think. He, at this point, was really not speaking as much, starting to lose sense, I think, of where he was. Honestly, like guttural moans. I remember peeking over the edge to begin to rappel in. He's about maybe 30 feet down. And I couldn't tell where his head was from where his feet were because of all the snow that had been knocking off into the crevasse from our rescue efforts. He was just covered. I could tell he was in bad shape because he didn't have the agency to clear his face of snow even. I was like, whoa, uh, this, you know, this guy's buried in snow and shorts and a wet jacket stuck between two pieces of ice for an, over an hour. I got down to him, delicately trying not to knock more stuff onto him, cleared his face, and uh, I've, I don't have a ton of experience firsthand with hypothermia, but um, keeping him speaking was important for us to be able to communicate what we needed to do to, to coordinate with him to get him out. Uh, I remember asking him about his family and just encouraging him that we had a plan. This is what we were ever going to do. You know, keep, just keep talking to me here. I was able to kind of like pull his harness and clip a locking carabiner into his hard point. So at this point I got just enough of his belay loop clipped in. So I knew that we could like really pull on him. And then for me with crampons on, it was about two minutes to climb out of the crevasse. Like uh, it really goes a long way to show you the right gear and not being stuck <laughs> can change a lot of things. Just kind of chimneyed out, ran my prusik up, came over the edge and we were pretty much ready to start pulling again. But I didn't realize that I had lost use of my hands until they lowered me down into this alcove that I could see, took the rope off and thought, okay, now I can tie it into my harness. And then I realized my hands just didn't work. It was kind of like wet noodles just no feeling in my hands. I thought they were broken. You know, I, I didn't know uh, exactly what the damage was, but I knew something wasn't right um, with my arms and hands. And uh, I think that's about when I lost consciousness for the first time was kind of laying there. Like, uh, I don't know what, what else there is to do. My last memory is of Ryan coming down in. And I remember him talking to me, tell me about your wife and your kids Tell me about, you know, your buddy, where, where have you been climbing, whatever. Then he said, okay, I'm going to climb out and then we're going to pull you out. And that's when I lost consciousness for good. And I don't have any memories from there until the next morning with uh, search and rescue talking to me. So he's clipped in directly to our system now. Kai and I start pulling and we do a couple kind of reps on this Z drop system and he's not moving at all. And, and he is able to kind of say, and you know, one to two word spurts, like it's hurting him. He's not moving. He's stuck. And so all of the progress we made was rope stretch. So wet ropes stretch a little bit, climbing ropes have an engineered stretch. Um, so that was again, <laughs> Oh, for two, not working great. Josh at this point was like, well, I, I can go get him unstuck. And I'm like, that is an excellent idea. 
if I had to do it in hindsight, I would not have buried the two crampons as the anchor pieces. Um, I think if Josh had crampons, that would have given us a little bit more um, opportunities and keep a couple doors open. But I was able to lower him um, off the unused end of our rope. He got to Tyler. Um, it's really dark in that crevasse too. So when I was in there, it just on either side, just disappears into blackness. It's like a really narrow slot canyon that you would see in the desert with this eerie blue glow from whatever lights coming in above and then black below with this water sound. I lower Josh into this terrifying hole. His headlamp actually popped off of his helmet and he could see it disappear into the water below and then run off, which was like, man, that's not ideal either. And I got to give credit to Krista Valentino, my friend who I climbed with last year. And he's like, oh, I always bring an extra headlamp. And I just bought a new one. And so I kept the old one in my bag and I was like, I have an extra headlamp. Um, so I was able to send that down on a carabiner um, on uh, Josh's rope, had the headlamp. And um, the way I've heard from Josh, you know, he kind of straddled and just was really like manhandling and tugging on anything he could grab on Tyler to get him unstuck. Like the rope that Tyler's on is super tensioned. You know, it's been stretched three times and um, Josh is just really working hard to wiggle Tyler out. And eventually I think he popped and shot up a couple feet. Um, there was so much tension on the rope that we were pulling on. Um, so he was free at that point. Um, that was a good win. I remember being up at the top with Kaya you know, pulling this rope and kind of trying to direct what was going on and kind of looking to her now that Josh is in the hole and admitting that it might not turn out great. Um, kind of from the condition that I had seen Tyler in, the time that he had been in there, um, the, the little hurdles that we kept running into, just kind of trying to maybe prepare myself that it was no, we definitely not out of the woods. So we're pulling Tyler up for the second time. Josh is kind of uh, sending his rope with Prussics behind him to just kind of be there. And we would need Josh to help get Tyler over the lip. The rope runs over the edge of the snow where Tyler broke through. And then underneath that like tabletop, if you think of like um, on a lake, you break some ice, you know, there's like a lip of hard ice and snow. And then the crevasse itself is kind of backset from that lip to get someone over the lip is a little difficult because you can pull them up into the roof and smack and like kind of squeeze them or smash them. You don't have leverage, especially if the rope cuts into that edge, like um, that floss on cheese analogy. Uh, when we got Tyler near the edge, he's pretty much completely unresponsive at this point. He's hanging limp arms, limp legs, pulling from his harness, like that scene from the matrix when they pull Neo out of the slosh, he's just like completely limp. Um, so I was able to get a double length runner to Josh, um, which you can do a little twist and a carabiner and make a chest harness. So my thinking was that if we could pull um, Tyler up from his anchor point on his harness, as well as a more advanced point on his chest, we could kind of drag him over the lip from two points, like kind of control his limp body. Josh was pretty critical in that aspect. We got the chest harness attached to the rope, tensioned, and then between uh, Josh pushing and, and positioning and Kaya and I really pulling on the rope, he popped over, you know, like a big wet limp noodle. I was able to go down to the edge and kind of like drag his body further away from the hole while Josh climbed out 
because Tyler had been speaking to us as well. I know that, you know, he could have sustained spinal injuries, other injuries in his fall, but again, just trying to triage what was most important. And for this, it was first getting him out second, getting him out of wet clothes and stable and some sort of a shelter where we could continue with helping him. So the kind of decision to move him was a interesting toss up at that, at that point, now that we were out of the hole. And at this point, Kaya went to check her device, her inReach. It's probably 11-ish, maybe later. It had sent one of two messages, the base message, which was just to like need help. I think Kaya had made a message or maybe an addendum to that that had a follow-up, more information, fell in a crevasse, need helicopter. But we were waiting to get a reply and still having issues kind of connecting with the satellite. So DeLorme, inReach, Spots, those are awesome devices, but it, you know they're not an end-all be-all that took an hour and a half for it to get a message out. From that point, like Tyler's completely wet. He's in shorts, a cotton t-shirt, and a super soaked, really thin down vest. We ended up cutting him out of his brand new jacket, I was told. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I gave him my jacket. Uh, we had maybe an extra pair of socks, put his legs in a backpack that we had. And our goal, our, our kind of thinking was to create a litter, kind of makeshift stretcher that we could drag him on because we weren't sure at this point if there were more crevasses in other locations, if we had been lucky walking to that point. We didn't feel 100% comfortable just walking with him across the glacier if there was a chance that we took a step and all four of us fell in or something. Listen next week for the final part of this series. Find out what it takes for Stolp and his companions to keep Willis alive. We'll also hear from Mike Shane, a Jenny Lake climbing ranger who helped bring Willis off the mountain. This podcast is produced by Backcountry Zero, a vision of the Teton County Search and Rescue Foundation to reduce fatalities and serious injuries in the Tetons. Find out more at backcountryzero.com.